Third down, 18, dropping Gannon, looking Gannon, looking Gannon, throws up the middle, and it's intercepted at the Derek 30, Brooks. Derek Brooks, 30, Brooks to the 29, 20, Derek Brooks all the way. There it is, the dagger's in, yeah. we're going to win the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, baby! Boom, boom, boom! Where were you that day? Let me tell you what I was feeling that day. I've been a Bucks fan since 1976. So I had suffered through a lot of very bad, bad football. <clears throat> Matter of fact, when they first erected that ship in the end zone at the Raymond James Stadium, I knew one day what was going to happen. Somebody was going to kick a game-winning field goal against my Buccaneers. The ball would go into the cannon. It would cause the ship to implode and the whole stadium to fall down. That's Buck ball. But here I was this day. I remember I was still a youth pastor here in town at Covenant Life Church. And we had about 65, 70 kids in my little house. We had a, you know, a big screen out, on, like a projector going on the pool area. And we had a big screen inside the house. And we're all watching the game. And I can't, certainly, the Bucks are up 21. They're up 28. They're, um, something's going to happen, right? There's no way that the Bucks are going to win the Super Bowl. There's no, so, it was too good to be true. And I had what you would call frightening joy. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. Welcome here this Easter Sunday. Uh, we're going through this series on the gospel of Mark called Move Over. In other words, make, your, make room in your life for Jesus. And today the message is called Frightening Joy. And Frightening Joy, uh, we're going to be reading from uh, Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8. But Frightening Joy, let me define it for you before we get started, just so you know where I'm coming from. It's the moment you recognize something so amazing, you fear it might not be real. So now you can see why I put the, the video of the Bucks winning a Super Bowl. It was so amazing, and you're certain it can't be real. It's not going to happen. But Frightening Joy is that moment when you get news... That's so amazing, that's the joy, that you fear there's something going on here. I heard it wrong, or I didn't understand it right. It can't be real. That's the fear. It seems real, but it's too good to be true. So let's look at our passage today. I love this passage. Obviously, it's the, the Easter story. Let me start off in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and, and Salomon brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. In other words, they're going to anoint his dead body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? We're just women. We can't do it. It's very heavy. And then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a, a white robe, and they were alarmed. Well, I'll bet you would be in that scenario. And I'm going to go back to Matthew real quick. Just put this part in there for Matthew. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They became comatose. And then the person sitting in the tomb said to the women, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Well, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you you would. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. You can see how we would have 
fearful joy here, frightening joy, terrifying joy. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Doesn't it seem oxymoronic that in the middle of joy you could have fear? It's a pretty amazing thing, right? This story. What we like to do in the garden, what we believe that we need to do is when we look at a passage, there has to be three applications that we understand. A lot of times people like to go right to, what does the passage tell me? But you can't really do that unless you first understand the history of the passage. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? And then after that, you answer the theological questions. What about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? And then and only then, after you understand the history and the theology, can you understand the devotional application of Scripture. What about me? What am I supposed to do and how do I do it? So let's look at the history of this passage. I want to look at the anatomy of frightening joy. How is frightening joy put together in the lives of these women? First of all, I want you to understand the disciples are grieving. There are a couple of days into the grieving process, and probably, I know from my own personal experience, and many of you maybe, two days in is probably the worst part. Because the relief from denial is slipping away. The shock is wearing off, and now you're dealing with the real news. So the disciples... The women, they're grieving, and it's probably at the most painful part. The cause that they had made the center of their lives, the cause they had dedicated their lives to, seems to have ended in a frighteningly tragical way. Apparently, they were not anticipating a resurrection, even though Jesus had told them. That he would. And they, we know that because they're going to anoint his dead body. They're trying to figure out who's going to roll away the stone. It's a big stone. And they went with oils to anoint his body one last time. Why weren't they expecting a resurrection? I mean, they had seen Lazarus. They had seen what happened to Jairus' daughter. They had seen Jesus demonstrate power over grave and death, and he said he was going to rise again, but for some reason, they weren't expecting it. If anyone, if anyone could have ever been able to muster faith on their own to make a decision to trust Jesus, it should be people who saw him conquer the grave when he was alive. But even in that moment, they could not trust Christ on their own. There had to be some sort of outside influence. They should have been expecting a resurrection. They should have been surprised by it. They should have been going to see, yep, he's not here. Just like he said, I can't wait to see him again. But instead, they go prepared to see their dead friend. And then Matthew tells us there's an earthquake. And so what's going on there? They're walking. They're, you know, how are we going to, you know, this is, this is sad, you know. How are we going to move the stone away? And you've got the oils, great, okay, and Man, I just I can't believe our whole life has come crashing down. The man that we followed, he resurrected Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, and he did all these miracles, feeding 5,000 and all these things. He, he clearly demonstrated he was God, and now he's dead. And while they're walking, there's an earthquake. They arrive, and the stone is moved, and there is an angel waiting there for them with a message. This is an incredible scene, guys. It's so amazing it causes Roman soldiers to faint out of fear. And I can only imagine what went through their minds as the the resurrection is made real to them. I wonder if the Roman soldiers were converted right there. 
This, this phenomena of falling down in a coma was not the first time in Scripture. It happened to Ezekiel when he had a vision of God. It happens in the book of Revelation to John when he sees the glorified Christ. But the women don't faint. They are trembling in some sort of state of fear mixed with thrill and joy overtakes them. It's frightening joy that leaves them shaken and astonished and speechless. But it's a good speechless. You know what else happens here? This gave them a whole new purpose for living. Let's get to that. What about the theological side of this? What about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? God constructs this frightening joy. Let me tell you how he does it. First of all, there is a resurrection. And in the midst of this incredible scene with the earthquake and the, the fainting soldiers and the big stone moved and the angel, here come the actions of God. There is a resurrection. There is the first most important thing that God does. He conquers the grave. The grave could not hold Jairus' daughter when Jesus was there. The grave could not hold Lazarus when Jesus decided it was time for Lazarus to be resurrected. The grave could not hold Jesus when he decided it was time for him to be resurrected. So don't forget that. There is divine interaction. Here's what I mean by that. This resurrection caused an earthquake. It caused soldiers to faint, the stone to be moved. The women to tremble with fear and excitement. All of this is a direct result of this direct interaction between God and the physical world at that moment where God is resurrected, where Jesus, the Son of God, is resurrected. And there's this divine interaction that causes these ripple effects. And then what I love, I love this part about what God does in this story. There is instruction and direction. Don't be afraid. He's risen like he said he was going to be. Tell the disciples, go back, tell them he's risen. Tell them he's going to meet them in Galilee, Galilee just like he said he would. This is what I love about what God does. God just doesn't do stuff miraculously and leave it a mystery. He has his word. He has direction. And that's what he does here for these women. So we look at the history, we understand the theology, let's get to the fun part today about the devotional part of this story. I want to look at the impact of frightening joy. Guys, this scene for these women was so uniquely designed exactly for who they were. I believe that the way it was set up with everything happening with the messenger and what he looked like and what he said and, and the words and, and the soldiers. And I believe the whole scene was constructed specifically for these three women who were at the grave so that they could be impacted by it in the most dramatic way. There was no wasted moments. The event connected them I'm jealous of this part. The event connected them to Jesus in a special way. The fact that they were able to be there. I mean, think about it. They went to anoint his dead body. It speaks to the fact that they had a special connection with him already. And then they go and they're the first ones to hear the news about the resurrection. That's special, isn't it? The first three people 
to hear about the fact that Jesus is not here anymore. That's a very intimate connection. That's why I say frightening joy is intimate. Frightening joy is also a pivot point. The news of what was going on right there changed their plans from internment and burial to become the first actual, think about this, the first missionaries. To take the message of the resurrection back to the disciples. It changed the whole purpose of their life. It changed their trip. It changed their light. It changed the reason that they were on earth at that very moment. Their frightening joy was a pivot point for them. At that point, they were no longer just women. They were women with the most amazing message the world has ever heard. The first ones to take the message of the resurrection to those who had not heard of it yet. But you know what else about frightening joy? It's miraculous. Let me explain what I mean. Frightening joy is what happens in our lives when God's spirit interacts with his chosen for the very first time. Could it be? Did he do it again? Did he conquer the grave again? We've seen it. Is this like Lazarus? Is this like Jairus' daughter? I mean, he said he would. But we didn't believe it. But here we are, and here he isn't. It's miraculous. I can't believe this just happened. But then there's another impact of frightening joy. It's it's risky. Joy can be frightening because we know, get this now, we know that it can possibly lead to utter disappointment. Does that make sense? I mean, we hope he is resurrected. We hope the angel's not lying. We hope it's not the devil deceiving us. But until I see him, we can't know for sure. Sometimes joy is so risky because you get the joy and you hear it and you think, no, what if it's not true? This feeling of euphoria that I have, this this incredible emotional, spiritual high that I have could all come crashing down if I misunderstood the words. If If I misinterpreted what is actually going on before me, it's possible that I will be crushed. I mean, their emotions must have been so intense. Can you imagine their pulse? It's surreal, right? And at this moment, I imagine they drop their anointing oils. And time stands still. And for just this moment, it's just them dealing with the news that their friend did it again. He conquered the grave again. What does it mean for us now? So for us today, what I want to do is I want you to see that frightening joy can transport you back to the empty tomb. A couple things. How would you feel if you visited the grave of a loved one and they weren't there? There's obvious people in my mind that stick out. 
First thing I would probably do is search for a rational explanation, right? Maybe that would explain away the miracle. And then there'd be these raw emotions, right? The thoughts are racing in my head. My heart is pounding. Tears of joy mixed with disbelief and possibly even fear. What's going on here? Did somebody steal my loved one? Am I imagining this? Did it really happen? No, let me think. The most simple explanation is the right one. What could have possibly caused this? How would you feel if you went to the grave of a loved one you've lost? To visit, to grieve, to find that they were no longer dead. Let's get even more personal. Do you you recall, for those of us that that have already been called out of darkness into light and we understand our connection with Heavenly Dad. Do you recall the moment of your first interaction with the risen Savior? That moment that you were miraculously, supernaturally given the gift of faith to believe in the resurrection because you can't believe it on your own. God has to enable you to do so. That moment that you realized that Jesus is risen and that he has been risen for you. Do you remember that moment? That first time that the Spirit of God interacted with you? I remember the day that God called me out of darkness into light. I was in ninth grade. And I remember it had such a huge impact on me. I didn't want to talk for two days. Me, Joe Davis, couldn't talk. That's it. I, I was so, and I'm just, I'm just telling you, I'm trying to remember what I felt that when, 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 when God called me and, and when my faith had been transferred out of myself and out of my religion into him and his work on the cross and the resurrection, I remember the feelings in my heart and in my mind. They were so overwhelmed. Now I get it. Something real and powerful had happened to me that day. It was beyond words. This is important for you to understand. What happened to me was beyond words, and it had nothing to do with being religious or pious or some sort of ritual that brought me to that emotional state. It wasn't somber. It wasn't a well-planned-out, orchestrated event that really tapped into my heart and manipulated my mind. It wasn't churchy at all. It was dirty, it was raw, it was open, it was honest. And I knew at that moment what the resurrection story meant for me. You know what I learned it meant for me that day? Grace, forgiveness, life, and transformation. See, before that day, it was just a story for me. Oh yeah, the resurrection story, yeah. But now, it had become a personal experience and I can't really explain that to you in an objective way, but I can just tell you what the gift of faith did for me that day. That gift of faith transported my heart and my mind and my soul back to the empty tomb where those women were. That's what happened to me. That day, my being was transported back to that empty tomb. Perhaps as I preach this, the Spirit of God is, you know, through the power of his word, is taking you there right now. And you know when it happens, trust me. 
And it's very special. It's very personal. It's very transformative and it's miraculous. But the best part is it cannot be constructed by me or by a church. The anatomy of frightening joy can only be put in your life by the power of the Spirit of God. And perhaps right now, for the very first time in your life, maybe you are beginning to experience that. So today, remember or experience for the first time, I hope everyone in the room can be in one of those two camps, the miraculous gift of frightening joy. Here's what I mean by that. Is today the day that you begin to see for the very first time what the resurrection actually means for you? Has the Spirit of God taken your heart and mind back to the empty tomb at this moment? If so, can you, can you just get a little sense, and maybe not to the intensity that they were there because there was an earthquake and all, but maybe you can sense a little bit of what it feels like to have frightening joy. Can I really trust this resurrection story? Is it really true? Is it really true that if I have been given the gift of faith to believe in it, that it transforms my heart and my mind and it gives me new values and new direction and new passions? Is it really real? Right now, it is being constructed, this frightening joy that saves, it is being constructed especially for you to give you a pivot point in a miraculous way. And you'll know when it hits because it will transform your life. It will transform your life just like it did for those women at the tomb. So that's where I'm trying to bring you today. I want you to experience the sheer ecstasy of frightening joy. Joy so great that you're afraid it just might not be real. But trust me, friends, it is. It comes from the God who conquered the grave. He is risen. You can trust it. And the joy will overwhelm you. I invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you that we can have faith and in confidence in the resurrection. We thank you for joy. Help us to be joyful people, not just in this place, but out in the world so that people will see our joy and say, hey, why are you, what's up with you? And we can point them towards you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. And most of all, we thank you for our risen Savior. And it's in his name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand with us as we sing one final song together this morning.
Everyone needs compassion A love that's never failing Let mercy fall on me Everyone needs forgiveness The kindness of a Savior The hope of nations Let's lift up our voices